Gresham College presents Satire, Print Shops and Comic Illustration in Late 18th and 19th Century London by Mark Bills, Curator of Watts Gallery. This afternoon I, I want to talk about visual satire and how it developed in London over a century. It will consider how it radically changed in that time and the forces that elicited that change. For satire in the late 18th century was a very different animal to the satire in the late 19th century in terms of its form, content, and how it reached its audience. And here's an illustration of that. I mean, the idea that you could get away with uh, mocking um, royalty in such, uh, uh, in such crude terms on the left. And when Queen Victoria does appear in, in satire, and she does appear, she's, she's hardly caricatured at all. So what do I mean by satire? Um, by the word it, I, I use in the title, it's a sort of, it, it will encompass a very wide uh, amount, variety of images that were produced in this period. And I'm talking about the satire that developed here in the late 18th century, which is the basis of the graphic satire as we know it today, which arose from really two quite distinct visual traditions. And this is the first that I want to talk about, um, which was the popular satire, which was often uses um, allegory and text, illustration, cheap broadsides, and its images were often symbolic and drew on popular and folk imagery, such as the symbolism of the emblem book. And there are just a few examples here. And the other is caricature, caricatura, or the systematic distortion or exaggeration of personal appearance. Um, this was the element that really brought it all to life. It was a surly visual tradition that relied on drawing observation. It's very much an art of wit and politeness. In contrast, satire was associated with much uh, lower, uh, lower form, whereas caricature was a recognised sort of branch of art that had come to London through connoisseurs and travellers on the grand tour. And for each of these many manifestations of comic art to make up a really rich tradition of English satire that developed in London, and the words between caricature and satire are very often used interchangeably. But graphic satire is essentially an urban phenomena, a phenomena that developed in London like no other city in the world. In the 18th and 19th century, satire flourished here and was the centre of a trade throughout Europe. But this unique blending of these visual forms uh, was um, intimately linked to literary satires and popular culture formed, formed this distinctive tradition. The interplay of word and image, for example, was developed as an important element within the image. From integral skulls, scrolls and balloons of text through pointed titles to the one-liners of, of later cartoons. Satire's ability to draw on a variety of sources accounts in part for the vitality of the images that were produced. The polite and witty import of caricature particularly suited social caricature in creating visual archetypes of Londoners across all classes, just as it suited the satire of recognisable individuals from politics and society. Visual satire, by its nature, is very eclectic. It draws from a whole body of varied images, using everything from popular, popular imagery to fine art. 
It includes the most base of images as well as the most refined. Its motivation can be high-minded in acting as a censor of, and promoting change and reform, just as it can have the lowest motives of titillation, personal vengeance, as well as being entirely mercenary in the vitriol that it uses. It was produced by the amateur as much as it was produced by the professional artist. It appeared in a variety of forms, from papier-mâché heads, and you see the examples there on the right, as common in the 18th century as spitting image was for the latter part of the 20th century, to find caricature prints that were considered, when framed and glazed, to make genteel furniture. Also in books and uh, newspaper illustration. For all these reasons, it's a dynamic and living art form. And perhaps because of this, it, it can be quite ephemeral, really tied to a particular time that it was created. A political joke, for example, that needs an historical explanation to make it clear, and at best it's universal, uh, it, it, at best it was universal and bridges cultural barriers. And in it, in just to, just to uh, illustrate this, in 1791, Frederick Wenderborn observed that caricature prints go likewise in great quantities over to Germany and from thence to the adjacent countries. This is the more singular and ridiculous, as very few of those who pay dearly for them know anything of the characters and transactions which occasioned such caricatures. They laugh at them and become merry, though they are entirely unacquainted with the persons, the manners, and the customs which are ridiculed. Satirical prints always played to a certain extent to the crowd because they always aimed to be seen by an audience or a particular audience. They had a message or joke which were aimed to reach people. They were always supremely popular, and it was, in one sense, the art of the street. It didn't grace the high art galleries, but was seen in print shops. It was, if we were to think of it in hierarchical terms, a low culture, very often disapproved of by high artists. The distinguished artist James Barry around 1795, wrote a letter to the Dilettante Society in which he bemoaned the popularity of satire and its corrupting influence that took its audience's eyes from the art that he and his fellows had produced. With respect to the arts, he wrote, our poor neglected public are left to form their hearts and their understandings upon these lessons, not of moral morality and philanthropy, but of envy, malignity, and horror, horrible disorder, which everywhere stares them in the face. In the profligate caricature of furniture of print shops, from Hyde Park Corner to Whitechapel, better, better far, there had been no art than thus to pervert and employ it to purposes so base and subversive of everything interesting to society. But the production and distribution of individual satirical prints in Britain in the, in the 18th and 19th century was centred in London. It began in the early 18th century as part of the print trade, which included books and prints as a whole. And satirical prints were bought and sold alongside fine prints imported from Europe, as well as those by British artists. By the end of the 17th century, the print shops were firmly established in London, centering around St Paul's and Fleet Street alongside publishers and booksellers, Peter Stent, John Overton, 
are two of the most important in the 17th century, and Stent's broadsheet catalogue produced between 1649 and 1653 is the earliest known for an English print seller and contains both Holler's version of Leonardo's grotesque as well as 17th century political and religious satires. Ned Ward, in his London Spy, The Vanities and Vices of the Town Exposed to View, noted, In our loitering perambulation round the outsides of St Paul's, we came to a picture-seller's shop where smutty prints were staring the church in the face. It was only in the mid to late 18th century when particular publishers began to specialise in caricature and comic images, such as the fun merchants Matthew and Mary Darley, and this shop you see here, who opened their shop in 1762. Until then, print shops had included satire as a category of print sold alongside any other, just as portraits were sold alongside topography. Even with the presence in London of shops that exclusively sold satirical images, general print shops continued to sell a range of prints, including satire and caricature, although, as a result, the distribution of satire increased rapidly. The Darleys were key figures in introducing caricature in London who founded their print business on teaching amateurs to draw and etch caric. In around 1762, Mary Darley published a book of caricaturas, providing an instruction and established and offered that any caric will be etched and published that the authoress shall be favoured with purse paid. And the new premises were... 39 Strand, which Surly published and sold these caricatures, which you can see here, which is wonderfully illustrated in this etching, The Macaroni Print Shop by Matthew Darley after Edward Toppen. But the London print trade flourished in the late 18th century. Print sellers had long been a presence in London, but the enormous demand for prints led to the proliferation of shops throughout the city. St Paul's was no longer the centre, and shops grew from the city down Fleet Street through the Strand and St James's. The shops provided an area to display and sell satirical prints. Newspaper advertisements had always provided a useful means to dis uh, <clears throat> uh, by which artists and publishers could sell their images, as well as auctions of prints. Yet it remained the print shop where the individual images of satire were predominantly bought and sold and consumed by Londoners until the mid-19th century when the development of illustrated London new, uh, um, newspapers and pictorial journals became the main media for satire. So how did a, a print shop work? Well, the shops were generally run by the publisher who owned the premises and uh, presses and employed artists and printers. Individual print production consisted of a collaboration between an artist and publisher, apart from a few cases where an artist published themselves. The artist would provide a painting, a drawing, or in some cases work the plate directly. The publisher would employ the printer, engraver, and colourer, adding colour by handmade. The prints made the prints more attractive and expensive and could even hide a multitude of sins on the, on the finished print. The completed prints would be then exhibited in the publisher's shop, listed in the catalogue and advertised widely. The shop would also widely distribute their prints, and the artist and diarist Joseph Farrington, in 1802, on a visit to Calais, noted that at the, com uh, at the, office of, uh, uh, the commiss commissary's office, a soldier stood as a guard. The room was decorated with a great number of caricature prints, ridiculing the English marching to Paris, Fox in several situations, etc., etc., but I believe them all to be imported from England. One of the most famous satirical shops in London was, of course, Mrs. Humphreys. 
The wonderful Bowfrontage shop, immortalised in James Gilray's print Very Slippy Weather from 1808. Anna Humphreys established a print shop at 180 Bond Street before she and Gilray moved here in 1797 to this famous shop at 27 St James's Street. The successful partnership of Humphreys and Gilray led to some of the greatest satirical images of any age, but it was not without its controversy. On the 1st of December, 1797, Mrs Humphreys published a print, and here it is, by James Gilray entitled Notorious Characters No. 1, depicting Samuel Island. On the 9th of December, Joseph Farrington noted in his diary that Stevens said Island had threatened to prosecute Mrs Humphreys for publishing the Gilray's portrait of Island. Later, than, uh, later that month, on the 21st of December, he tried to buy a copy and writes, I went to Mrs Humphrey's shop for the portrait of Ireland, but she would not sell it. The liable of £5,000 initiated by Ireland was eventually dropped on the advice of counsel. Um, what's interesting to note about Humphrey's shop is the way in which prints were displayed, staring the world in the face. They were really a free exhibition and the way in which the wildest uh, the widest possible public came to see the prints. And here is a reconstruction of Mrs Humphrey's shop window, which was done for the exhibition here at the Museum of London in 2006. William Holland, who specialised in satire, had also commissioned works from Gilray, and he opened exhibition rooms in the late 1780s at number 50 Oxford Street and charged uh, visitors a shilling entry. A very rare view from 1794, this view, by Richard Newton, shows the exhibition which displayed unframed prints attached to the wall from the floor to ceiling. His advertisement for the Times claimed that in Holland's caricature exhibition rooms may be seen the largest collection of humorous prints and drawings in Europe. Samuel William Forres was Holland's main rival and set up exhibition rooms at number three Piccadilly where he made equally bold claims that his grand caricature exhibition was the most complete collection ever exposed to public view in this kingdom. In order to further draw crowds and outdo his rival, he went to the lengths of actually exhibiting the head and hand of Count um, Stru Struanese, possibly Plastercasts, who was headed in, um, beheaded in Denmark. In the cases where a buyer didn't wish to commit to buy a folio of prints, Samuel Forres offered the folio of caricatures, which could be lent out for the evening. One of his surviving labels states, Folios of caricatures lent out for the evening, London. This folio must be returned by the person hiring it on the following day by 12 o'clock, or pay a second half a crown, and to secure a return of the folio, um, a deposit of 20 shillings is required. The person to send two shillings and sixpence with the folio and the pound will be returned. And here is a drawing by Thomas Rowlandson showing uh, 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 an evening's entertainment with a folio of caricature prints. Rudolf Ackerman's smart repository of arts on the Strand sold many caricatures to the burgeoning respectable middle classes. It did not specialise in satire, however, but also produced designs, fine art prints, as well as magazines, the repository of arts, which ran from 1809 to 1828. Its first caricatures were produced in around 1798, one of the first being Thomas Rowlandson's Cries of London, uh, engraved in 1799. 
Thomas Tegg, who, like Ackerman, flourished in the um, early 19th century, was based at Cheapside and commanded a different um, section of the market. His Apollo library represented a cheaper uh, version of Ackerman's repository, selling uh, cheaper reprints and abridgment. He did, however, commission many artists, particularly George Woodward, Rowlandson and George Cruikshank, um, publishing many important satires. An aquatint here we have from um, 1830, a London conveyancer published by Lewis and Johnson, shows a group of people staring at uh, the, the window of a caricature shop in Cheapside in 1830. How satirical prints were displayed by their uh, was as eclectic as the prints themselves, uh, particularly how, it was, how they were displayed by those who bought them. And, and it reached, they reached all echelons of society. They could be found in the folios of gentlemen connoisseurs, framed and displayed in print rooms of the landed gentry. William Holland advertised specifically to caricature collectors who may be now supplied with the greatest variety of London of political and other humorous prints bounding volumes and ornamented with an engraved title. Prints were also assiduously uh, collected by the middle class who hung them in their London houses. Carrington Bowles's print catalogue of 1790 reveals their appeal to just such an audience, listing its mezzotints, and here's some examples here, for after John Collett, comic paintings, 34 humorous prints from the pictures of John Collett, Esquire, in the possession of Carrington Bowles. When framed and glazed, they make a handsome appearance and fashionable furniture and are always kept ready finished. An assortment of the above are always kept ready and framed and make genteel furniture. But if many satirical prints could be offered as fashionable furniture, such as mezzotint social satire or the, the droll mezzotints, many others could not. Political print, prints and those that were vulgar and even pornographic had a different role. And at this end of the market, there were disposable images that could even be pasted, uh, which were pasted up in various places while still topical. And there's even a record that uh, some satirical prints were used to decorate the inside of chamber pots. If satirical prints were consumed privately through those that were sold in great numbers, they were also consumed by a greater number of people on the London streets through their exhibition and print shop windows. Caricature shops are always besieged by the public, wrote the London visit visitor Hutner in London and Paris in 1806. A crowded window displaying prints is a common subject feature in many satires, as you've seen already. Yet the exhibition and viewing of satire through print shop windows was often considered as an immoral, um, uh, an immoral activity by common, some commentators at the time, and a place where pockets may be picked or prostitutes could seek clients. These public exhibitions were considered dangerous spaces, reflective of riotous assembly, reflective of satire itself, an incendiary that might ignite the popular crowds with morally corrupting and politically sub subversive ideas. John Corrie, writing in his Satirical View of London of 1801, wrote a chapter on caricature and print shops, which is worth quoting at length. When brought to the tribunal of reason, it will be found that the greater part of such caricature prints and paintings as appear in the windows of our print sellers are injurious to virtue. This humorous mode of satirizing folly is very prejudicial to the multitude in many respects. In the loss of time to those who stop to contemplate the different figures, 
the opportunities given to pickpockets to exercise their art, and that incitement to licentiousness occasioned by the sight of voluptuous painting. The indecent attitudes, obscene labels, and similar decorations must have a powerful effect on the feelings of susceptible youth. And it is an authenticated fact that girls often go in parties to visit the windows of print shops, that they may amuse themselves with a view of prints which input the most impure ideas. Before these windows, the appearance that the, the apprentice loiterers, unmindful to his master's business, and thither prostitutes hasten, and fascinating glances endeavour the allure, the giddy and the vain, who stop to gaze on the sleeping Venus, the British Venus, and a variety of seductive representations of naked feminine beauty. Are these witty but profane and indecent labels, and this display productive of any good? Do they not rather tend to the deprivation of the mind and contribute to relax the moral ties of society? If such be their tendency, he magis uh, would deserve the gratitude not only of the present generation but of millions yet unborn by the suppression of these paintings and engravings which, through the medium of the eye, empoison the purity of the human heart and mislead the laughing victim into the paths of folly and vice. The warnings about the dangers of standing outside um, caricature print shops, brilliantly as brilliantly evoked in Robert Cruikshank's dandy pickpockets. Numerous reports list incidents outside shops such as the Times who reported that an honest maltzer had his pocket picked on no less of no less than £80 whilst he was in the act, innocent man, of looking in a caricature print shop window in the city. Little did the unsuspecting countryman imagine when he was enjoying himself in the luxury of gaping at the felicity that when our heroes of the pencil take off the person's characters and actions of the great that another description of the, of the metropolitan artists equally in the expert, expertness of their fingers with the former were employed dexterously the hard cash and good notes he had received for his cattle or his corn. The dangerous and immoral reputation of print shop windows was not limited to theft, but also to prostitution and, and other then illegal activities as a gay meeting point were reported in the Regency period. In the case of Samuel Forres, a print dealer, um, he came forward as a witness against the prosecuted Edward Everett regarding an incident outside his shop. The report, again, it was reported in full at the Times, Bow Street, Edward Everett was charged with gross improprieties with James Baker at the caricature shop on the corner of Sackville Street, Piccadilly, on Monday evening between 5 and 6 o'clock. Also with George Crocker, a lad between 15 and 16, whom he enticed into Green Park. Here, Mr. Forres, who keeps a print and caricature shop at the corner of Sackville Street in Piccadilly, came forward and said he had something to state. Mr. Forres was then sworn and said that he had known the prisoner a long time as a most detestable character. He has often observed him through his window, at which he has generally collected a crowd of where, where generally there is collected a crowd of persons. The prisoner um, made his way gradually through them until he got close to some youth. Mr. Forres here described the most scandalous practices of the prisoner. Witness has often endeavoured to make the prisoner aware that he, he knew what he was at, and if possible, to shame him away from the place by holding up to his face a print of the Bishop of Clogger. But instead of going away in consequence, he stood and looked. 
at with the most utmost concern. And this you, Mr. Forrest, said the prisoner, who come forward against me, a man who I've patronised and done material services to. Done me a service, said Mr. Forrest. I would not accept a service at the hand of such a wretch. I believe you once laid out four or five shillings in prints at my shop, if you call that a service. But you know, and I know you well, and I've seen your practices at my window. What this passage demonstrates is a growing priggishness in the Regency period, as we see from Forres holding up perhaps a print of the poor Bishop of Clogher uh, to, avert, uh, 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 to, 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 to scare um, Edward Everett. Dorothy George, in a, a magnificent survey of social change in graphic satire, observed that growing morality and prudery in this period. This, in turn, had an impact upon the way in which prints were produced and, in effect, censored images, and is worth considering the change in use and audience uh, for prints. How common objections were to print sellers is really quite difficult to gauge, but probably not that common, for no other reason than aggressive complaint was likely to spur interest um, rather than actually uh, to, to get rid of it entirely. And the trial, and this is um, the trial between John Smith and William Wood, which took place on the January the 20th, 1813, provides an interesting and typical case study of how satire could be used by publishers for libelous attack and avoiding um, prosecution. The print, it's called The Inside of a Newly Reformed Workhouse with All bu Abuses Removed, and transforms John Smith, surgeon and apothecary, as a rat eating the parish malt. Whilst William Wood is studying the centre of the image, accusing the vestry clerk of receiving 40, uh, £45 pounds, um, for bastardy of an adjoining uh, parish. And John Smith's action was to recover a compensation in damages for publishing a gross, scandalous and malicious libel in the form of a caricature print from William Wood, a boot and shoemaker of City Road. The presiding judge, Lord um, Ellenborough, found insufficient evidence despite such a clear image of alleged corruption, which illustrates the extent to which the ambiguity of visual images uh, could not be proved as conclusive. And Lord Ellen Ellenborough concluded that, I certainly feel for this gentleman and the exposure of his wife in such a way, but upon this evidence the action cannot be sustained. The caricature shop declined hand in hand with its reputation. In the Regency period, the print trade went full circle, and the book trade again once more predominated over the individual print seller and caricature. In effect, it became a sideline, or, or rather integral, a part of book and print sellers again. The watercolour, this watercolour of a, of a print shop owner outside his shop, shows a typical window uh, uh, of the Regency period. What's very noticeable is that the shop still retains its exhibition window where the viewers could assemble to see the prints, but although the images, uh, although images are still predominant, text is taking up far uh, uh, you know, uh, more and more space, and it's a much more uh, conservative in its, in its display. But if perhaps the dubious reputation of the print shop was a factor for change, the others were the, the, the change in society. And also the speed at which the images were consumed. Folios and series were always a, f a feature of, of caricature prints, even when they were individual plates. And when caricatures were exhibited, it was often in very large numbers. Series of caricatures became increasingly attractive, and the loan of folios looked forward to the development of books, 
bound folios, broadsheets, and ultimately periodicals and magazines that were created around satirical illustrations. A proliferation of satirical magazines emerged in the early Regency period, many illustrated by the great George Cruikshank, most notably probably The Scourge, a monthly magazine, the expositor of literary, dramatic, medical, political, mercantile, and religious imposter and folly. It was founded by William Norton in January 1811 and was sold by Goddard in Pall Mall and Johnson in Cheapside, the former withdrawing its sales after July due to its blunt assaults. It managed to avoid libel, but was dogged by financial difficulty and finally folded in 1816. The real innovation was the introduction of a new form of satire, the caricature uh, magazine, where the uh, image was not simply an illustration, but was more akin to what we now would think of as a, a comic strip. The first to be produced in London was The Looking Glass, published by Thomas Maclean, beginning on the 1st of January 1830 and running for over uh, six years. The term caricature magazine had been coined for over a decade in London, but it referred rather to bound folios of individual prints with a consistent title page, in effect a new way in which prints could be sold rather than an entirely new format which the looking glass represented. The earliest of these was produced by Thomas Tegg, which advertised that it was to be continued every fortnight containing two coloured prints priced two shillings, the caricature magazine or <clears throat> being a most capital collection of caricatures. The Looking Glass and their counterparts, such as Everybody's Album and Caricature Magazine, which had begun in 1833, used captions and inscriptions, but no separate text. The use of lithography provided the means for its creation uh, through its ease of printing, such as uh, so how it could uh, produce its sort of text and an image so easily together. And it, it was illustrated by the talented artist Robert Seymour, um, who later went on to illustrate uh, Dickens's Pickwick Papers. The Looking Glass imitated newspapers and responded to political events. This unique form of caricature was, was relatively short-lived, and the emergence of comic books much later was effectively eclipsed by satirical journals which, continue, which contained both image and text. Unlike The Looking Glass, Figaro in London, which which ran from 1831 to 1836, merged caricature and journalism and was close, far closer to the punch which would emerge in 1841 than it was to a comic book. In its wake, there was a proliferation of such journals published in London. The Wag, Punchinella, the first illustrated by um, Isaac Cruikshank, but which ceased after its tenth number, Asmodeus in London, um, illustrated by Seymour, The Devil in London, um, again by uh, Isaac Cruikshank and Kenny Meadows, the penny trumpet, the schoolmaster at home, and the wig dresser. What the journals represent is a radical change in how satire was produced and received. The images themselves have become less important, with the textual elaborations and journalistic commentary becoming far more important. Writers, editors, elaborations, uh, uh, writers, editors and publishers had given a greater say in the creation of these images. Yet despite this, these periodicals are still removed from the Victorian comic periodicals um, of, of, these, of the Regency. It was predominantly image of which the axis upon the text uh, revolved. The whole question of creation, the discussions between author and artist, radically affected the nature of this imagery. 
which gains more and more narrative elements. And the position was to change even more. And this is an illustration of this, because when George Cruikshank worked on uh, an illustrated Charles Dickens' sketches by Boz, Cruikshank was a celebrated one. The author was still pretty unknown. A decade later, and their positions were almost reversed. The march of um, progress and radical changes begun in the Regency satire continued in the Victorian period. Comic magazines became weekly periodicals, and this is um, the, the Tomahawk and St. Stephen's Review. Comic magazines became weekly periodicals, mass production increased, and the newsstands effectively replaced print and booksellers as the main distributor of satirical images. London, however, remained the heart of production, and its main audience was a metropolitan one, just as the subject of London continued to dominate. The spirit of satire continued in a less ra radical, uh, radical way, and its, its, its production in previously inconceivable numbers were, were circulated in the metropolis and beyond. Satire changed as London changed. Technological advancement heralded changes in the form that these took and allowed much greater numbers to be produced. Alongside a metropolis, a metropolis that was expanding at an enormous rate, its increasingly literate populace more aware and concerned um, with poverty and injustices in the capital rather than perhaps um, 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 uh, in individual um, folly. Ernest Chesnow, who is influential the English um, school of painting, characterised the change he wrote that dating from the honest but savage mirth of the coarse Saxon William Hogarth to the gentle smile of Kate Greenaway in our own day, a century and a half has passed away. Can it indeed be the same nation which receives with such delight the playful sparkling banter of her charming productions after having so rapturously applauded the bitter cutting sarcasm of the other? But it is quite possible. Hatred of vice and love of innocence are but different expressions for the same feeling. The distinct nature of Victorian satire was moulded by a number of factors. One, was, um, one of the major catalysts of change was technological, which directly affected the form in which the images took and the audiences it reached. The medium was that transformed the satirical images and the illustration was wood engraving. Unlike etchings, the predominant medium of Regency satire, wood engravings were more easily producible in much higher numbers without losing their quality. In the 1840s and through the most of the 19th century, wood engraving was unique in being able to adapt, uh, adapt painting, drawing and photographs into line and produce copies in huge numbers. And these are two, um, uh, two illustrations from Punch. But wood engraving was a perfect medium for periodicals, and if comic magazines began to emerge and proliferate in the Regency period, it was a new form that dominated the Victorian period, the illustrated magazine. Two illustrated periodicals which took full advantage of the possibilities of wood engraving uh, dominated the century. The Illustrated London News, which began in 1842, and Punch, which had begun a year earlier in 1841, the first illustrating, the second satirising. In the wake of these periodicals, a large number of imitators emerged, some more radical, some cruder, but most following a similar format and challenging the monopoly of punch, which it, which it often failed to do. Punch by no means had a monopoly on the talented authors and artists. 
And it's worth looking here at just a list of the comic periodicals, some of the comic periodicals that emerged within this period. Although not exhaustive, it gives you just an idea of, of those that were produced. Many of them were short-lived, but the sheer numbers of production gave an indication of the audience that existed for such magazines. Due to the relative ease of production, the costs were relatively cheap and stayed within pennies, allowing a much wider circulation than had been previously possible. In 1841, the year of the birth of Punch, it was estimated that 472 newspapers were circulated in England and Wales. By 1900, that figure had ballooned into 2,323 magazines and reviews and 2,491 newspapers. In 1870, we have an idea of the readership of Punch and Fun and Tomahawk, which amounted to 40,000, 20,000 and 10,000 respectively. The model and mark set for satirical periodicals was Punch. Before it, comic periodicals, um, albeit in, in, in a different form, had been in decline. Mark Lemon and Henry Mayhew founded the magazine to be in part modelled upon Philipson's Paris Charivari, the first edition of Punch. The London uh, Charivari was issued on the 17th of July 1841 and it was an enormous success continuing throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century and inspiring rivals which it, cons uh, which it consistently outsold. Its success was due in succeeding to attract the most important illustrators of the age. In the beginning, John Leach, Richard Doyle and Kenny Meadows and later John Tenniel, Keane, Du Maurier and Linley Sanborn. And although much of Punch was verbal satire, the inclusion of a full-page caricatures um, uh, which was left uh, blank on its on its reverse, so it didn't uh, so it didn't uh, ruin the, the the image. Was 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 sh which showed how important the image continued to be, even in even in a, a, a journal a journal magazine with so many words. If the format of Punch, with its wood engraving, after drawings by the cream of the Victorian illustrators and satirists set the mark for other periodicals, its radical treatment of pertinent social problems was, always, was also a distinguishing feature of the satirical weeklies. Certainly in its early days, the coining of the term cartoon, meaning a comic illustration rather than um, a serious preparatory drawing, emerged in Punch in 1843 with John Leach's most famous and influential images, one of his most influential images, Substance and Shadow, we see here. Um, called Cartoon Number no. 1 from a series of images produced by the magazine in response to the exhibition at Westminster Hall in 1843 of the cartoons for the decoration of the Houses of Parliament exhibited at Westminster Hall. The graphic image makes explicitly clear Punch's criticism of government policy, which favoured schemes of cultural and by implication moral improvement above tackling directly the problems of poverty. The commentary that went with this, because the text was became increasingly important, was, and I'll read some of it, we conceive the ministers have adopted the very best means to silence this unwarrantable outcry. They have considerably determined that as they can afford to give hungry nakedness the substance which it covers, at least it shall have the shadow. The poor ask for bread, and the philanthropy of the state accords an exhibition. Its biting attack, even without the savage imagery of Gilray, hits the mark. 
and also serves to criticise the irrelevance of fine art in avoiding, um, avoiding depictions of contemporary society. The past hundred years have seen the publications of literally millions of cartoons in newspapers and journals. By its very nature, it's ephemeral, dealing as it does with topical issues and responding to the demands of the modern editor. Within this period, much has changed, and a brief comparison between cartoons um, published in, in 1900 and 2000 clearly illustra um, illustrates this. In 1900, caricaturists on the whole were trained with a much more formal style at, at art college as opposed to the very self-taught car cartoonists that are often working today. As a result, the visual style is on the whole simpler, more direct, eclectic and less sophisticated. Of course, there's a great exception, such as Steve Bell, who, like Gilray and Rosen before him, studied, and here we have Steve Bell and Gilray, and you can see there's the strong influence that, um, that Gilray uh, continues to have upon the work of um, uh, 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 Steve Bell. It would be unthinkable to find an Edwardian satire that lampooned the royal family as spitting image lampooned the House of Windsor. The professional, it's almost gone full circle to the first slide that I showed you. The professional and amateur coexist side by side, and a renewed acerbic imagery um, is around today, and redolent perhaps of satire's golden age in the late 18th century. Yet the past century can also be characterized as a period of decline of traditional forms of satire in its relative re uh, reduction on the page of a newspaper. The full and double-page images that appear in 19th and early 20th century caricature, uh, caricature are almost unknown today. It's difficult to predict which forms of satire will be used in the future, but what's certain is that the spirit of the satirical image make, uh, 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 will, make it, will mean that it's got to continue its eclectic, brilliant, and essentially dynamic nature, which will make use of any new possibilities that arrive, whatever they may be. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.